0: You're listening to The ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 390. I'm your host, András Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host Pontus
1: Böckvann. See ya! Hey, son, hey, san, Have you thought about one thing, András?
0: What? What is...? That
1: Just because would. they changed the dates for QED, brought it one month earlier than last year, it will not be the 400th episode when we uh, record at <gasps> QED. <sighs> they did it just to spite us. But we will be there anyway, and we will have a fantastic time. Everybody, I'm, I'm really getting psyched now. I mean, this is the highlight of the year always, but yeah. now it's getting closer and closer. Ah, it's going to be fun. Fantastic.
0: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So is it is it confirmed are we are we having a live recording uh, well no but we will okay. have a recording whatever <laughs> happens <laughs> whatever I happens think. if we do we don't get onto the podcast track <laughs> we are just finding a quiet place for ourselves <laughs> and record there yeah okay yes, that's, yes, a yes. that's a good plan everybody's welcome
1: anyway so that's good
0: yeah but we wouldn't mind i'm not sure anyone's listening um of, of the organizing team we wouldn't mind being on the podcast track though but yeah
1: yeah well we have been for the last couple of ones and it usually comes together quite late in the game so i i think it'll happen we'll see yeah or we'll make something happen on our own Yeah, but because we we love to to meet our listeners of course in person that's one of the things one of the reasons that qed is so fantastic but we do also get some listener feedback normally when we are not at QED. <laughs> yeah, so, we do. So <laughs> um, there, there was one, for, well, a couple actually, but there was one uh, that came regarding my uh, take on the burning of the Quran last week. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, so I understand. It is complicated, complicated topic, but some people felt that... Uh, I was criticizing the burning of the holy book, right? So I was not taking a strong enough stance for free speech and the necessity to criticize religion. So I just try to make my position clearer because there's so many angles to this. So first of all, I do strongly advocate criticizing a religion. So uh, in fact, I do this almost every week <laughs> on this show. So that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. I tend to focus on Christianity and Catholic Church, because that's more relevant to our part of the world here in Europe. Um, I am also 100% against any heresy laws that Mm. would make burning of the Quran illegal. And I think I said so last week as well. That's not acceptable. You can't have heresy laws. But before you decide to burn a Quran, you have to really make up your mind. What is it that you're trying to achieve? If your goal is to convince people that Islam is bad, burning the book will not achieve that. That is my opinion. I don't think that it will help in that respect. Uh, In my opinion, you will only help to turning some moderate Muslims into fundamentalists because they will become so upset about this and they will start a war against you. And that doesn't help in combating religion, in my opinion. But also, specifically... The context is that we're talking about Denmark and Sweden, and it's clear to me that the aim of those who are doing it now, burning the Quran right now, they are not doing it to criticize Islam, at least not as a primary thing. Instead, they are, in my opinion, helping Putin by creating problems for NATO, and What's happening right now is, in my opinion, 99% political and very little about religion. Some of them may think it's about religion, but I I think they're doing, they are being just uh, running Putin's errand for him. So the question then is should it still be allowed to burn the Quran? Yes, it should be. But again, what's happening now in Sweden and Denmark is you should also consider it a bad idea. Not prohibited, but a bad idea, because it's counterproductive in combating religion, and it's only helping Russia. And that's what I was trying to convey last week, and maybe I wasn't clear. And this is just my humble opinion. Mm. I'm quite happy for people to disagree with me on this, but that's that's how I feel.
0: Yeah, and that's a key part of uh, what you're saying and your attitude, that uh, you're quite happy to disagree on something with someone, and <laughs> uh, and that that's that's okay. I mean, this is this is how we get stuff discussed, and uh, otherwise it would be just silence. And um, this is one one of the reasons why I do not subscribe to any of those actions, like like destroying books, destroying monuments, or things that have been erected to people that we, for some reason, do not agree with or we don't support the idea of commemorating them because it's getting things out of reach and out of sight is not necessarily the way to go i mean if we want to discuss stuff let's discuss them but don't try to act as if something doesn't exist and if it doesn't exist then it's better for all of us it's not not necessarily plus as we mentioned it last time burning books is just so childish it's it's ridiculous yeah <laughs> so, it doesn't help it, doesn't, no, it help. doesn't it doesn't yeah I'd like to mention another feedback that we got uh, we got several of those regarding one of the things that have been said on a recent episode This time, our friend and occasional co-host and contributor to this show, Brian Ego, did mention that to us. But also Dan McCoskey, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, who occasionally sends us material to talk about on Patreon, for which we are very grateful as well. And also, for his financial support, by the way, wink, wink, others who would like to support our work. (laughs) (laughs) So Dan recently sent us a reminder that not even skeptical podcasters are immune to myths. But since we are here to try and help you separate the wheat from the chaff, obviously it's important to issue a correction when we are wrong about something. So... In a recent episode, I don't know which one it was exactly. It was was the last one. It was the last one. Uh, Mm -hmm. We discussed how slow changes in the wrong direction can go virtually unnoticed. And in the heat of the discussion, a widely used but really wrong claim (laughs) was made that if you heat the water under a frog in small increments to boiling temperatures, you can actually cook the frog. Whereas if you put it in already boiling water, it will allegedly jump out. Well, Dan did send us a link as well to an article that debunks that widely held claim and rightly so the funny thing is i somehow hadn't noticed that this Mm. was this
1: was said well you (laughs) were there you were there on the episode and i edited it but i i must say that i have never taken that seriously i've never thought that so i just let it pass because i thought it was just a metaphor something that people say but of course you can take it seriously or literally but just be clear everybody we don't believe in that, and it yeah. does, it's not true. You can't cook a frog by just turning up the heat a little bit, a little bit. It's a metaphor for the climate yeah. change.
0: And 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 the funny thing about this is that I've been known to criticize that and, and debunk that notion whenever I come across it. <laughs> okay. Because even though I consider it a good enough metaphor, I do think that it still propagates a bit of a myth. How it escaped my attention, I have no idea. I blinked. I, I, I don't know. But But now that we're talking about it, let's just think it through. First of all, you cannot drop a frog into boiling water without harming the animal, right? So, (laughs) Don't try this at home. No, 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 please don't. (laughs) Just take our word for it. Don't do it. If you want to cook a a frog, which some people do because (laughs) they just like the, (laughs) the meat, please kill the animal first, please. I've been there. We had to do that at Anatomy Labs Not a good thing, but it's still better than cooking an animal alive. So its tissues will be damaged instantly as most of the proteins in the skin and muscles will be denatured and probably even coagulated in much lower than boiling water temperature. So it will definitely happen. Denaturing means that you basically destroy the capability of that protein to do the thing that it does by nature. And coagulation is when particles of those molecules start clinging together, and they stick together. Obviously, that's what happens when, for example, you cook meat or you cook an Boil egg. An or egg. Some of the boiling egg. Yeah. Yeah. If you've ever thrown a chunk of meat into boiling water, you know what I'm talking about. So it won't jump out. It definitely won't jump out. It will probably go into shock and die. But the other part namely the slowly heated water thingy, is equally nonsensical because frogs do have temperature receptors. Even though their thermal regulation is dependent on the temperature of their immediate environment, they do have them. So when it becomes unbearingly hot, it will try to escape while it can. And you should let it out. Yes, please, <laughs> please, <laughs> please,
1: don't cook it. And then don't cook it. it. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you, if this a, is now a science show where you describe this or if it is a cooking show. But in any case, don't cook the frogs. <laughs> or a horror show. Yes, please, when it starts
0: getting damaged, please, please don't let it, let it happen any, any longer. And it will start to get damaged. And nociceptors the, will, will kick in and the animal will feel the actual pain. So that's not nice. These are just a few of the examples of, of why this is a wild. Accept the falsehood. No, a frog will not let itself cook alive. Just like we are doing when when being fed all kinds of nonsense, yeah. accepting them as truth. So to sum it up, I'd like to thank you, Dan, for pointing it out, and Brian as well. We need to be made aware when we made a mistake. I'm not saying it won't happen again. <laughs> Unfortunately, it will definitely it happen will again. Most definitely ha- uh, will. <laughs> But we always try to be factual. And when we're not, we need you all to let us know.
1: We need your support. And also to make a very direct and blunt uh, segue here. We need your support. So we have created a merch shop now. By the time this goes out, you you will be able, if you want to, you can go into our website, which is theesp.eu, and you will see a shop there. If you want to buy a nice cap or a mug or a t-shirt or something like that. So please try that if you want to. We would love to see people at QED coming in our t-shirts that that would really make us very very happy so, so and proud as shop. well uh, very <laughs> proud and so proud that we will be a little bit embarrassed but very very happy <laughs> and if you do that and
0: you do support our work either by buying something on the web shop, or by supporting us on patreon or just to send uh, some money our way on paypal You will be supporting our little non-profit organization that is behind the ESP and that will support our everyday work as podcasters, like buying equipment, the services, posting things, and also to get to conferences and cover the expenses of those if we can. And that is also how we are trying to spread the word of European skepticism, collaborations and all that. So please consider supporting us. And we promise to keep doing this and deliver the stuff that you hopefully like about our show. So that is the case, I hope, (laughs) with the first segment that we usually have, which is This Week in Skeptical History, also known as Twitch. The day that we are celebrating will be the 12th of August, which is specifically a special day for those in the Church of Scientology. Hallelujah. Mm, hallelujah. Uh, I, don't, I, don't I don't know if they I don't say think that. that, that no, 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 I don't think no, so. That's uh, no, no, no.
1: All praise be seen or something.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Some, some more like that. So the 12th of August marks the establishment of something that they call the C Org or the C Organization. And that is a very weird part of the Church of Scientology. It's basically a core group of it. The funny part, first of all, they play a very weird game of uh, like being sailors. L. Ron (laughs) Hubbard, the founder of Dianetics and Scientology, actually bought three ships, the Avon River. The Enchanter and the HMS Royal Scotsman and they rechristened the vessels and then they started using them as flagships for the sea organization. And these are like the top level people in the organization and the actual staff members are not necessarily just top level, but those people who are doing the everyday work. The funniest thing about this, I think, is that those members have to sign a billion-year pledge of service to the Church of Scientology. (laughs) A billion years is a long time. It is a long time. So it's a management part of the Church of Scientology. And obviously, whoever is the leader of the church is the highest ranking sea organization officer or sea org officer. So David Miscavige, who is the current leader, has the rank of captain. Easy to become captain if you set the rules yourself? Exactly. This is what happened to L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> so it happened on August 12th, 1967. And I think this is a good enough reason for this to be featured on this week in Skeptical <laughs> History. Because yeah. it's just so nonsensical. And if we started to go into the details of how it all came about, that billion years of service pledge... <laughs> well, it all starts with the Galactic Confederacy and the tyrant named Xenu and all that. So, I think I Created think we it. would it's just ridiculous, but um well, I would say that about the whole Church of Scientology as well if it wasn't a terribly frightening organization at the same time. Yeah. With all the control and surveillance and and everything towards their members. So, yes, the Sea Org is celebrated. Actually, that is called the Sea Org Day, <laughs> the twelfth of August. Yeah. Well, with one church organization to the other, I can't wait to hear how Pontus pokes the po.
1: Okay. Yes. Just a short one this time. Uh, last week was World Youth Day, or World Youth Week, depending on how you define a day. Mm. And that was the whole thing, I imagine. I'm just going to highlight one thing, and that's what happened on the plane when Frankie returned home from Portugal. As we have described before, he was joined by a number of journalists who are paying quite big money for the privilege to talk to him while they're traveling back. They have a chance to to meet him a little bit more intimately. Intimately?
0: (laughs) Intimately.
1: The question of female priests and marriage for gay couples came up and when asked why the church was not a place of equality for women and members of the LGBTQ plus community, given that they cannot receive all the church sacraments, Frankie said, quote, the church is open to everyone. Then there is legislation that regulates life inside the church, end quote. According to this uh, church legislation, these groups cannot have access to the sacraments, he continued. But he insisted that, quote, this doesn't mean that it is closed, end quote, it being the church. So in the short of it is, sure, they're all welcome and shouldn't feel rejected, but they will always be second grade members because reasons. So re- you should all remember that before you talk about Frankie as the, quote, progressive pope women and lgbtq people no nah, they don't quite fit into the church they shouldn't feel rejected but they can't join not fully
0: <laughs> yeah but please don't feel rejected you you can just it's it's just not for you that's yeah. all <laughs> since it's for other people yeah all right thank you very much pontus for poking the pope once again thank and you. that brings us to what's been going on lately in europe also known as the news
1: All right, so to follow your twish about the Sea Org, Anders, I have a little mini-twish for you. Mm, because okay. on the th- on the 3rd of August, Retraction Watch turned 13 years old. So that means that it's not twish, it's lwish.
0: It's the last week in Skeptical
1: History. <laughs> 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 okay, last week in Skeptical History. I'm a little bit <laughs> off there. Okay, yeah. fine. But they do have a birthday... And we do refer, of course, to Retraction Watch from time to time. And it's a great and independent service that keep... They keep a database of all research papers that have been retracted or taken down for some reason. They also blog about these retractions almost daily. And they report on fraud in papers and things that haven't been retracted yet, but probably should be. And it's a very important uh, service that they provide. You need to highlight bad science... It needs to be monitored at all times. If they didn't do that, we wouldn't be able to trust the scientific method and its result as easily. So happy birthday, Retraction Watch, and may you be around as long as there is science. And we hope that science will always be around. Mm.
0: Speaking of science, it's important to assess the validity of, of certain claims. And sometimes we try to use scientific methods... To figure out whether something is real or not, right? But on some occasions, it is very difficult and it proves virtually impossible. What I'm referring to here is coming across deep fake. So deepfakes are a form of artificial intelligence, whereas an algorithm generates something using real samples of someone's voice, for example, when it's an audio deepfake, and produces a synthetic media file that will resemble the voices heard in that original recording. So what can it be used and why it's called deep fake is because it's really difficult to distinguish from the real recording. So if I say something here and now, and then with those being put into the learning mechanism of that specific AI, and we give that AI a written text, it will read it up using my own voice and my intonations, and it could be potentially be virtually indistinguishable from my original voice. Okay, so a lot of studies have been published recently about that because it's an increasingly important problem to tackle. University College London researchers did a very new thing in that regard because they not only did it in English, but they use it in another language, and that is Mandarin. They came up with 50 deep fake speech samples in each language, English and Mandarin, generated using that specific AI algorithm. And they tried to assess with 529 participants to see whether they could detect the real sample from the fake speech. And the results are not very encouraging. Mm. On average, in 73% of the cases, they could identify it. But I have to add that that is in the case of some things that are um, called the unary cases. So the unary cases were distinct clips that were shown to the, the participants. And they listened to an equally randomly chosen sample of either real clips or the synthesized clips. And they had to identify them now there is another version that they tried that was a so-called binary system and in that they had pairs of the recordings. so there was an actual recording and there was one that was used uh, with the voice of the same speaker but the recording itself was computer-generated so there were both versions of the same text and when that happened, it was a little bit better how people usually performed, but not by a large margin. And that is something that we need to be thinking about very hard. And the other problem is that they tried to train people by way of familiarization. The deep fakes have specific characteristics that you can look out for when you try to assess whether it is real or it is deep fake but unfortunately the detection accuracy was not increased by a large margin it was like 3.85% on average hmm. and that's not a great increase that means that still even with tr- with that kind of training we could still expect about an 80% Of hits when it comes to trying to assess whether something is deepfake. That means that in one out of 10 cases, you would not be able to detect that. And that is a huge potential for deepfakes and people who would like to convince you that someone has said something that is probably not so. And that can have a lot of implications from like authorizing things with your voice and Well, that is a great issue when it happens. And the other thing is when politicians are thought to have said something that they never, ever said in real life. And that could make a difference in the outcomes of political elections as well. So in the long run, that could affect the direction that a country is going towards. Those are just a couple of examples. But this is food for thought. And this is why we are not very good at that, apparently. And I understand when someone thinks that, oh, it's not that bad, it's 73% already, but it still means that in 27% of the cases, it will not happen. And that is a lot, considering how much deep fake content we can come across online. So that is a big issue. And uh, I think we should all be on the lookout for publications like this, because it's important for the future of humanity. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. This, this is important.
1: <laughs> yeah, but there's two things to add to this, really. First of all, in these tests, the participants knew that they were trying to separate fake from real. And yes. in normal situations you 're not aware of it you're, you don't expect the deep fakes, so you' you 're not even on exactly. your guard and The second thing is that the technology is just getting better it's getting better every mm-hmm. week. so I think we can safely assume that in the future we will not be able to separate deep fakes from, from almost at real fakes but from real real speech it will It will be impossible, and i don 't know how we will handle that but uh, One of the,
0: yeah, the uh, experts argue in a lot of the cases that uh, we should probably try to catch up with algorithms that can do it for us. But that means that we have to be aware of the certain data points that have to be analyzed in order for that distinction to be made. Mm -hmm. So it's not an easy task and we are not catching up. So the automated systems are not catching up with. The development that you just mentioned, how fast that development is. Hmm. So it's... Um, I'm a little bit worried about this.
1: Yeah, we're screwed, of course. <laughs> yes, we are. So let's focus on some old-fashioned, skeptical topic instead. Good. Occasionally, there are reports about people being injured by chiropractic practitioners. Nah, right? that's there, not even, there There are even deaths... Reported, yeah. but usually it's difficult to definitively prove the connection in the individual cases, right? So you, it's hard to prove, but you can suspect what's happening here. And there, there are two things that can happen, of course, at least. There's the direct injuries that can come from the so called spinal adjustments where the practitioners make a sudden adjustment to the spine. In extreme cases, this can result in releasing blood clots that can lead to strokes and and other nasty things. But there's also indirect harm where uh, chiropractors, because of their background and because chiropractic is not really based in any science, but it's a pseudoscience, A lot of chiropractors are opposing vaccinations and water fluoridations and things that we know are good. So that's the indirect harm. So that's bad, right? But uh, then you will probably be very happy to hear that the World Federation of Chiropractic, or the WFC, has now launched a new Global Patient Safety. They call it GPS. They didn't realize that that acronym was already taken. They call it <laughs> so the Global Patient Safety Initiative. And at first glance, it seems to be full of uh, good intentions. The WFC's Secretary General, a Professor Richard Brown, said that, quote, It is important that we do as much as possible to inform ourselves in relation to the risks and benefits of chiropractic treatments and related activities, end quote. And then he went on to say that this initiative, quote, will highlight key areas of patient safety to support chiropractors, build and strengthen the existing safety culture and help to meet the expectations of patients and the public. End quote. All good then. Right. (laughs) Not so fast. Not so fast. (laughs) Our good friend uh, Ed Ernst pointed out the following things. If, If you look at this, this is pretty obvious. They're not suggesting any monitoring system, and that it doesn't exist today either, to keep track of adverse effects. So without that... It's very scientific. No, you you can't track patient safety then, if you don't track it, if you don't keep a record. The next thing is that they claim that they, quote, know that serious adverse events are rare, end quote. So then Edzard says, well, how do you know that? Since you're not keeping any records, how do you know how rare they are? And that's a very accurate expression as well, that they are rare. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Again, not scientific. (laughs) Uh, The next thing is that they refer to an existing safety culture, quote unquote. Edzard Ernst again calls this, quote... Wishful thinking and far from reality, end quote. It is simply not true. We've seen this before. When something bad happens, the chiropractic community is never focused on making sure that there's no repeat of the issues. They what they've usually focus on is that people still think of chiropractic as safe and effective. And they never go on to prove it, they just want people to think that. So this is more of a PR maneuver than anything else. Yeah, They are not focused on testing the efficacy and they're not focused on monitoring the safety of their procedures. They just issued some sort of statement yeah, trying to make the impression that they are.
0: Yeah, they're masquerading as those who are keen on quality control because that is like the the cultural environment that they tried to do this, but it's it's just not real quality control. If you want to really make sure that you have quality control over your actions and over the profession that you are overseeing there are certain scientific methods that you can provide everyone with that but if you don't apply those methods then you're just it's, it's just make believe it's just it's just acting mm. <laughs> so it's not what, you, what we want especially not with healthcare mm. Uh, Speaking of healthcare, I'd like to refer back to Adzer Ernst, who recently published an article on The Skeptic, the UK Skeptic magazine, with the title so-called Alternative Medicine and Vaccine Hesitancy. Now, it has been discussed extensively whether... There is a connection between so-called, the belief in so-called alternative medicine or scam, as he calls it, and uh, vaccine hesitancy. But it's, there, there have been a couple of articles on different journals in English mostly and from, well, like a global perspective. But there have been recently two investigations in France that seems to have put everything into a different perspective and find a little bit of cross-correlation between the attitude towards modern medicine and, well, against modern medicine, and um, a bit of an attraction towards complementary and alternative medicine, and that kind of enthusiasm, and the aversion to vaccination. And this is what these two studies uh, have basically shown. Uh, One of them uh, even came up with something that is called an alternative medicine index, And in the department, they based this on how internet searches with relation to scam were spreading and how frequent they were and what the actual topics were. So this seems to be quite a good way of assessing the actual interest levels towards that uh, given topic. So yeah, they found that it looks like the vaccination coverage rates show a correlation with how poorly someone thinks about the establishment and how well someone supports scam or so-called alternative medicine. And there was another study which was done on a representative sample of the French adult population back in, in July 2021. And that study showed another interesting result and it supports previously held results. So It really looks like there is a bit of a cross-correlation, but it definitely needs more investigation. But it's a very interesting uh, topic. And I do recommend, Without, I I didn't want to go into all the details, but I do recommend reading both studies that Z Ernst links to, because those are very interesting findings that these researchers made.
1: All right. So I want to go back to a real classical, skeptical topic here. Some like legends. Bigfoot or what? <laughs> Almost. Some legends that just don't go away, like a Bigfoot, as you mentioned, or ghosts or aliens or witches. They're all things that should have been discarded long ago, but they never seem to die. Not really. Mm. And it doesn't matter how much we, re- we learn about reality. So another classic is, of course, the Loch Ness Monster or Nessie. There's never been any compelling evidence for the idea that there should be a big monster in Loch Ness. The so-called best evidence, maybe, is the cl- or at least most known evidence, is the classic photo from 1934, the so-called surgeon's photograph, which I believe everybody is familiar with. I mean, if you've seen a picture of Nessie, that's the one you've seen. I've never seen it, I've never felt that it was very convincing myself. To me, it looks very clearly that this is a very, very small thing because of the way you look at the waves around it. In any case, it's just a silhouette and it's very blurry. It doesn't help because people still want to believe that it's true, so they don't give up. A few years ago, researchers from New Zealand did something very smart, I think very clever, instead of searching the whole lake. They uh, used the modern DNA technique, so-called eDNA, to analyze water samples and see what kind of creatures might swim around in the lake by just looking for DNA in the water. And every living organism sheds DNA all the time. Uh, no matter how much you think you, you shower this morning, you're still shedding <laughs> DNA when you walk out the door. So that's very smart. Uh, But they found nothing. Uh, No signs of a big plesiosaur or big animal or big sturgeons and things that have been suggested as uh, explanations. And that should have been, I think, uh, the final nail in the coffin for Nessie. But now it's time again. There's an organisation called the Loch Ness Exploration. And they will conduct a new coordinated big search for Nessie on the 26th and the 27th of August this year. And what they will do is they have drones fitted with infrared cameras and they will be flying all over the uh, the lake and they will have a hydrophone to detect any unusual underwater sounds. Volunteers are also invited to uh, participate and look we for. To be bait or what? So no, well no, because they specifically talk about quote safe vantage points end uh, okay, quote. Okay. So so if you want to be a, particip- <laughs> uh, a volunteer, you're supposed to stay. On land and uh, look for possible signs of a creature <laughs> somehow. Okay. <That's... laughs> so, and I get it in some way. I mean, it's mostly a, a bit of fun, maybe. It's good for the tourist industry, I'm sure. You've been there, Andras. Yeah, at yeah, Loch Ness. I've yeah. Several yeah. times, you, many people, times. People. Yeah, yeah. I haven't yet, but I, I wouldn't mind going there just for the sake of it. And it's probably a very good time for drone enthusiasts as well to go flying for a couple of days and, and maybe get their names in the paper. But apart from this being an obvious waste of time and resources, <laughs> uh, there's it's also a big disturbance to the environment, to the lake itself, with all the real animals that actually live there. Yeah. Imagine the stress of a whole armada of drones constantly going back and forth for a couple of days. Uh, Not to mention to old Nessie if she's there. (laughs) So you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. It's not a good idea, in my opinion. And, of course, if they will find her, Nessie, I will take everything back... But I think I'm pretty safe. How do you
0: know it's a her?
1: Classically, they, it's ref- she's referred to as a she. Uh, I don't know uh, why, but <laughs> it's <that's>... okay. <laughs> we'll see what they find. I don't think you know. I don't. Th- I don't think the gender of the animal is the big it, issue is here. the big issue? No, is, is, is I don't big, think it's. Is, a... is it there or not? And it's not, I'm pretty sure.
0: Yeah, but you know what? I have mixed feelings about this because Mm -hmm. part of me wants the following to happen. That Mm -hmm. as the drones are flying over the water, a large, big, prehistoric animal jumps out of the water and catches at least one of them or a whole bunch of them. Mm -hmm. And that would be awesome. That would be amazing. Just like it would be absolutely amazing to meet aliens here on Earth and be assured that they visit us but it had no
1: well <laughs> with just... our luck nessie will catch all of the drones and there will be no evidence of uh, what happened afterwards yes. oh yeah that would be in line with what's ha- has happened in the and, and
0: what usually has happened yeah what usually happens with these investigations yeah oh well okay well, um, since we are already in the. UK, and specifically Scotland, where most of the oil and uh, gas licenses, uh, well take in effect, because Northeast Scotland is the best place in the UK for the extraction of all those fossil fuels. Now, what is the problem with this? Well, the major problem is that extracting even more oil and gas from below goes strictly against what all of those countries, 196 countries, agreed on in 2015 in Paris, right? Yeah, the Paris that Agreement. The, the Paris Agreement, that the goal of which is to keep global warming levels below 1.5 degrees. And most of the experts already agree that we won't be able to do that. And if we burn everything that has already been extracted, we will definitely overshoot that and we will definitely not be able to keep it below 1.5, but probably not even below 2 degrees. If we keep extracting everything that's underneath, we are basically super fucked. And why the UK government is doing that is to boost the British energy independence and grow the economy, as they say. But some examples exist around the world, including that of China, that it can be a very good investment to try to develop a renewable energy solution to the energy needs of a country. I mean, China is still the greatest emitter of carbon dioxide, that is true, but they are also the greatest in installing renewable energy solutions all over the country. So yes, this is the wrong way. And I actually nominated the, the UK government for this to the really wrong segment. But there was such a contest for that, that they are not the ones taking it home. But uh, with that out of the way, I would really like to know who's been really wrong lately. <sighs>
1: Yes, so this one was sent in by listener Irving from uh, Ireland. Thank you very much for that. Uh, But there's a conspiracy theorist called Gemma O'Doherty. Actually, we should start the story going back all the way to 2017. In 2017, there was a Lidl supermarket advert on TV showing a mixed-race couple... And O'Doherty tweeted about uh, this at the time and she was sparking a full-blown hate campaign against this very real-life couple and their son, who was only 22 months old at the time. The campaign against them built on the so-called replacement conspiracy theory. I don't think we've talked a lot about that on this show, but it's pretty well known. That's a, The point of that is that there's supposed to be some sort of plan to replace the existing population in Europe or in the US or wherever you're talking about with foreigners or, let's put it bluntly, non-white people. Despicable, racist, total nonsense. Uh, So, But this campaign ended with the the couple actually decided to leave Ireland and return to England where they had uh, come from in the beginning. So really terrible. But that was six years ago. But O'Doherty is still at it. She is the editor of a conspiracy theory newspaper called The Irish Light. Her latest adventure is that she has through articles in in this paper whipped up a posse of followers against a woman called i don't I'm not sure how to pronounce that first name Edel or edel Edel Campbell anyway she accuses Campbell of quote outrageous lies and that she's being she's mentally unstable and that she's involved in a massive fraud and Why is that you may ask? Well, Edel Campbell's son figured in an article in the Irish Light. And that article listed a number of people that O'Doherty says died from getting vaccinated against COVID. Some of the people in this article died in reality from other causes. One drowned in a pool, it's not necessarily due to vaccination. One died from a head injury. And a third one died from meningitis. Campbell's son also died from something completely different. And also, he was in fact not even vaccinated against COVID. The abuse started because Campbell was very, very vocal about that the COVID vaccine had nothing to do with her son's death. And that's when the harassment started. The latest development now is that Campbell has brought a civil suit against O'Doherty, which I hope is successful. Campbell's lawyer has also now become the target of O'Doherty's fans, if we call them fans, and he has received uh, death threats. So very, very nasty business. And uh, for spreading conspiracy theories left, right and center, and for harassing people who dare to speak up against her or defend themselves, Gemma O'Doherty gets this prize for being really wrong.
0: And rightly so. Well, I should say, well deserved. Yes. (laughs) Thank you very much for that, Pontus. And that basically brings us to the end of today's episode. But before we go, obviously, we need a quote. Today's quote will be by Stephen Fry, who's a British writer, comedian, actor, broadcaster, director, and just awesome guy. All out, wonderful person, (laughs) awesome guy, he said this about science. You will hear things like, science doesn't know everything. Well, of course science doesn't know everything, but because science doesn't know everything, that doesn't mean science knows nothing. Science knows enough for us to be watched by a few million people now on television, for these lights to be working, for quite extraordinary miracles to have taken place in terms of the harnessing of the physical world and our dim approaches towards understanding it.
1: Very good. I have never heard or seen Stephen Fry do anything that I do not approve of. <laughs> so oh, I'm not oh, really? surprised that okay. this is a good quote. No, I, there might be things. I'm not saying he yes, has no faults at all. very correct phrasing. <laughs> yes, but I'm saying I have always been very happy when I've seen or heard him do anything. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's good likewise so please uh, if someone someone
0: knows something that might change that for a while, either of us <laughs> okay. please okay. please send it our way or, or, or don't i probably want to be ignorant about them <laughs> i don't know <laughs> he's one of my heroes come on but that really concludes our show which was unfortunately one that we had to do without the presence of Onika.
1: Yeah, we miss her, of course. She is not feeling quite well. Most importantly, her voice is not really collaborating, so she couldn't join us today.
0: Yeah, which which is not very helpful when we're doing a, basically a radio show. Hmm. We really hope that Annika can join us next week with her voice fully recovered. So get well, Annika. And I'd like to thank you for being here today, <laughs> Pontus. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Hello, Bis dann! Tschüss! Tschüss. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Robb and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.thesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can be.
1: Was not a place of equality for men, for. (laughs) Was not a (laughs) place. Try again.
0: All right. Thank you very much. (coughs) Sorry. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Locations are for getting them out of the top layers uh, or out of those layers. That line behind the top layers. No, oh, whatever. So, <laughs> extract that Oh, that was a good thing that I had that coffee after dinner.
1: <laughs> mm. Now I don't know when I'm gonna be able to go to sleep. Let me try one thing. Hang on, hang on. What's happening? One, two, three. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can. Yeah. You know what? What? If you put if you put the mute switch on, it doesn't work. That's why this microphone didn't work. Ah. Okay. ah, yeah, so I I mean, yeah, bloody amateur, I am. <laughs> yeah. I wow. sat through a whole meeting last uh, couple of days ago, couldn't get it to work, and uh, now I couldn't get it to work, but that's the bloody mute switch. Okay. <laughs>